Chapter 15, Opening Doors. The opening quote for this chapter is by Robert Frost. The best way out is always through. Because we owe taxes from the money spent to build the house in Fairfield, the IRS seizes and auctions it for one-third of our investment. After the dust settles and when finances permit, we make plans to leave the town that has been our home for the past 10 years. We make our way to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, to re-enter the human race after being sequestered in our small Iowa community. We rent a house, send our kids to public school, learn to snowboard, and begin rebuilding our lives. Working by myself, my business grows enough so that I am able to repay all debts. But I am lonely and do not enjoy closing myself away in an office all day to talk on the phone with people thousands of miles away. I want interaction, a sense of community, and a way to share what I have learned with others. I also want to free myself to work on projects that hold the promise of more challenge, interest, and financial freedom. But to do this, I need others to share the work, which means I need to hire employees. After a long discussion, my wife gives me a qualified yes to offer her youngest brother a job. Next, I hire one of her cousins and my youngest brother. Before long, we have a brand new 1,200 square foot office with six people working together. Unlike my start as a recruiter, we have a distributed database digital phone system, high-speed internet, and email. Life seemed good, but by the winter of 2000, I realized that none of the people I hired were actually wired for the job. Even though I did everything to make the work easy and profitable, far beyond the industry standard, not one was up to the challenge of maintaining stable earnings. One by one, they left to do other things, leaving me alone in my office once more. In March of 2001, I received a call from one of the original people we hired and trained to work at my old firm. He tells me that he recently went through a very difficult time in his life, being bedridden for days, incapacitated by fear, and emaciated from stress. He tells me that at the end of his ordeal, he had an awakening about himself, his life, fears, purpose, path, and his relationship with God, and asked if he could come to Jackson Hole to tell us about it. When he arrives, it's awkward for me because this is the person I believe betrayed me in my final days at that company. Doing my best to put those feelings aside, I listen to his story at the end of which he asks forgiveness for anything he might have said or done that caused us any harm or pain. We forgive him as best we can, after which he says, I care for both of you and your children very much. Wouldn't it be wonderful to live together in Boulder? It's a great place to live with a fine university. Maybe your children could attend college there. After six years in Wyoming, we moved to Boulder, Colorado. Three weeks later, 9-11 happens, and overnight my recruiting projects are frozen, money owed is deferred or denied, and we are unable to fulfill our financial obligations once again. Honestly, I don't know how we survive with our life so upside down and the huge debts from which we could not easily recover. One year I earned 425000 and the next 25000 You do the math. I became very depressed and began to beat myself up for all the decisions I must have made to get myself into yet another horrible situation. Then I remembered hearing someone saying, when one door closes, another opens. In fact, I begin to encounter complete strangers who state in a very anecdotal manner that things will turn around because when one door closes, another opens. Well, I keep hearing about that other door, but all I see is a pile of debt with recruiting as my only source of income. Not only has the recruiting business dried up, but I continue to feel it's not a good use of my talents. Desperately, I look elsewhere for solutions only to find my professional life in shambles and my spiritual practices of no avail. Once again, I am filled with fear, doubt, and disbelief that I am in this situation. My faith, 
whatever that meant at the time, is stretched to the limits as I'm faced with the truth that after years of dedicated spiritual practice, my life is in the proverbial toilet. I wonder if I'd been mistaken to pursue the guidance inherent in the present moment. I wonder how all this time and effort has benefited me if my life is in such turmoil. It's in the midst of this inquiry that I find myself in a conversation with someone I'd met while living in Fairfield, who had also moved to Boulder some years before. He tells me that his wife is away in Tennessee for a two-week retreat with a Swami who was an expert in Kundalini science, which is a spiritual practice that is based on a systematic understanding of the most subtle universal energy patterns that permeate and motivate all forms of expression and experience in life. He suggests I might be interested in what she has to say when she comes home. Later in the week, his wife returns, and my wife and I sit with her as she relates some of the things she's learned and experienced. The most significant point shared is that while there are many spiritual techniques, significant spiritual growth is not possible unless one engages in practices that are suited to one's individual system. It's not that the spiritual practices offered through many traditions are not of value. They are only as valuable as is their suitability to the aspirant in the same way that a medicine works only to the extent that is suited to the patient's disease. She goes on to say that this Swami has been trained to evaluate, prescribe, and design practices that are suited to the individual needs of the aspirant. Listening to what is being said, I am experiencing that tingling sensation throughout my body, which I long ago learned to associate with hearing something that was true for me. Before the end of the evening, I schedule a retreat for my wife and I, even though we had no money for the evaluation, the flight, or the retreat itself. The first door opens. In September of 2002, my wife and I find ourselves at our private two-week retreat with the Swami. After we settle in for a couple of days, one at a time, the Swami instructs us in our customized practice. Two days later, I receive a taste of the goal I first experienced on the bus, heard discussed through TM, studied in Asian philosophy, and have been longing for my entire life. There in Tennessee, of all places, I realized that my desire for spiritual transformation had not been lacking, but that the tools at my disposal had not been well suited to my needs. It's not that I had not benefited greatly from past practices, but they had taken me as far as they could, and now, for the first time in my life, real spiritual progress was within reach. Two days after the first transforming experience, I notice that I'm filled with a buzzing vibration. It seems as if my entire body is filled with what I can only describe as the buzzing of bees. Of course there are no bees, but there is an increasingly intense, pleasant vibration within, from head to toe. Several hours later, I notice a feeling of increasing discomfort deep in my abdomen, which I had never before experienced nor imagined was possible. The Swami, who was aware of my condition, grumbles in his Indian accent, I fix not to worry. Then he directs me to drink four ounces of pomegranate concentrate along with four shilajit pills and tells me to go rest. Lying in my room, I struggle with both the pain and fear, thinking I may soon need to go to the hospital. But, true to his word, after about four hours, the pain begins to lessen, such that I begin to feel I might survive the episode after all. Shortly after, there is a knock at the door. It's the Swami telling me it's time to come out and continue evening practice. Resistant, but having a newfound trust in this little man, I do as I am told and return to the practice room. After dinner... The Swami and his understudy talk openly about what happened to me. The Swami says without apology or by way of excuse that whenever the subtle body system is realigned, the organizing principle that permeates life in general and my body in particular is able to remove the largest toxins from the system. This is what happened to me and depending upon 
the condition of a person's system, the process will be experienced differently. But once a certain point is reached, the process of purification is automatic. All one need do is continue their practice and live a pure life. Listening to his explanation, I wonder if my path will have other moments of purging and how I might deal with them. After two weeks, we leave the little house in Tennessee and make our way to the airport to return home. Walking again amongst the people and world, I feel very different. Not only does my body feel unusual, but I also notice that when walking up even steep hills, I have no sense of gravity or effort. It's as if my weight has been reduced in a way that you just don't get from dieting. When we return to Boulder, I decide to share what has transpired with only a few. The pain I experienced at the retreat has greatly diminished, but other disquieting sensations have begun to make their way through my body. My business is still in the toilet, leaving us in financial duress until we sell the stock I received from assembling the technology team for a company called Magma. Amazingly, Magma had gone public after 9-11, but shareholders were prohibited from selling their stock until May of 2002. When that glorious day arrives, I sell all the shares and use the money to bring current all financial obligations, thinking I could resurrect our credit, refinance our house, and pull out some equity while waiting for my recruiting business to rebound. But we are unable to resuscitate our credit and the business never rebounds. By December 2002, we lose our house, the $300,000 down payment, and move to yet another rental. For the next 18 months, we wait out the dry spell in our industry while the purging process works its alchemy on my life from the inside out. All in all, I am very uncertain about the future. While those who tell me things will get better, they just seem to get worse, leaving me to struggle to do whatever I can to keep it all together. A few weeks into the new year, I'm in a conversation with a sympathetic and intuitive family friend that I value because of her ability to ameliorate the effects of the fear and grief that have come to the foreground during our financial meltdown. I describe what happened in Tennessee, to which she says she can detect a great change in me. Then out of the blue, she asks if I have ever heard of professional coaching, and no, not the football kind. I reply, no, what is it? She tells me that coaching is a systematic process designed to identify and release the hidden beliefs that we confuse for reality. She goes on to say that these hidden beliefs, called blind spots, cause all the breakdowns, traumas, and anxieties in life. This piques my interest, to say the least. Then she volunteers that a couple of her friends have just completed their training at New Ventures West in San Francisco, one of the best coaching schools in the country. My body is filled with chills as I listen. It's like someone just stuck my finger into an electrical outlet, making all the hair in my body stand on end. I'm aghast, stunned, and elated hearing a description of the very job I have sought to do my entire life, but never knew existed. After a few more questions, I leave, anxious to tell my wife that I'm going to spend the next year becoming trained as an integral coach. All I need is a way to pay for the training and our expenses. The second door opens. Several weeks later, I'm at my desk doing whatever I was doing in those days to make money when I get the impulse to call my friend Grace, who I'd met some years before in Jackson Hole. I called her because I was in need of immediate financial assistance and knew she could help. When she answers the phone, she is genuinely delighted to hear from me. After some small talk, I tell her what has transpired and ask her if she can help. She says she has every confidence in me and would like to help by lending me money but needs to talk with her husband first. The next day, she calls back to say she's spoken with her husband. As I wait to hear the answer, I feared she said that they've decided they cannot lend me any money. My heart sinks. But then goes on to say they would like to gift me not only the 7500 required to pay for the year-long coaching training, but 20000 to cover living and travel expenses. She asks if that would be helpful and falls silent. 
consumed as I have been with fear, judgment, self-doubt, and the daily struggle to merely hold myself together in the presence of a tidal wave of popular wisdom that suggests I'm a failure, I find her offer so overwhelming that I am unable to hide my emotions. All I can do is sob my gratitude, to which she says in her usual matter-of-fact manner, I'll take that as a yes. I'll send you a cashier's check tomorrow. After an extensive, albeit exhausting, application process, I am accepted to New Ventures West Integral Coaching Training with my first class schedule for May of 2003. The third door opens.